although it's not a very lengthy form, every word matters. I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage Podcast, brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. It's a podcast for anyone considering a career as a barrister, from students at school, university or on the law conversion or bar course. It's for those contemplating a career change later in life and wondering what it might entail. And it's for the army of pupillage applicants out there, from those applying for pupillage for the first time to the battle-weary, giving it just one last go. We know that at times the search for pupillage can seem daunting, so in each episode we talk to junior barristers fresh from their own pupillages, members of pupillage committees, senior barristers, QCs, judges, masters of the bench and lots of other guests and ask them for their advice, what to do, what to avoid and how to succeed. Today, the pupillage gateway opens. Hundreds of young lawyers across the country will be starting to craft their applications for pupillage. The gateway is a centralised application process, a bit like UCAS for universities, that many chambers and organisations use for their applications. This year, for the first time, candidates can apply to up to 20 chambers through the gateway. Chambers can add their own questions and adopt the standard pro forma questions on the gateway form. Some chambers prefer to be off-gateway and their applications can involve bespoke forms or cover letters and CVs. In today's episode, we talk about gateway and non-gateway applications, the ways to draft your answers and some common pitfalls to avoid. We kicked off the episode with someone who really knows how to impress a pupillage committee. James Duffy, you're a member of the pupillage committee at Fountain Court. Welcome to the pupillage podcast. Thanks for having me. Would you like to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm at Fountain Court Chambers. Uh, I have been since I did pupillage, um, which is now a very long time ago. But I guess I'm about 13 years cool. So I've been in chambers for about 12 years. and I've been on the pupillage committee for probably about 10. So since fairly soon after being taken on. Fantastic. So you will have read an awful lot of applications in your time. I have, including uh, 180 mini pupillage applications uh, only about a month ago. Goodness (laughs) me. Well, perhaps you could start by telling our listeners, what is the pupillage gateway? So the pupillage gateway is a bit like the uh, UCAS university applications process. Most, uh, well, a large number of chambers are within the pupillage gateway system. Um, So you have the same application form within the same sort of application time frame for lots of those sets. There are some chambers that are outside of the gateway and you have to have a separate application process for them. So, so does that mean that if the L Woods of this world want to send in legally blonde applications on scented pink paper, that they're not going to be well received? They certainly won't be well received by those in the gateway, but I, I'm not sure about those sets who are outside of the gateway. Perhaps they'll uh, be, be encouraged by that, I don't know. Can you tell us, please, from your long experience of reading application forms what are the first things that you're looking for when you when you read through and doing an initial sift the very first thing are academic credentials um so it's pretty much the first part of the form it stands out quite a lot um and it's really to see whether the candidate is a realistic applicant for pupillage so my number one tip is if you're thinking of applying to a chambers look onto their website, have a look at the CVs of the people who are tenants there, members of chambers, and compare your CV to theirs. Um, And if your CV matches up, if you've got a first-class degree or a high upper second, 
then that, that's a good starting point um, because that is the bit that's going to be looked at first. And so essentially, if your academic credentials don't match up, then it's unlikely your, your application form will be successful. So what you're saying is that it's a waste of one of your 20 slots if you fail to take the sort of fairly basic step of just making sure that your degree corresponds to the class of degree that most people on the website have got. Precisely. You have a limited number of places. So you want to make sure you're pitching your application to sets that you have the most realistic chance of getting a, a pupillage offer from. We've had some people talk about bullet points before. Do you have um, a view on to bullet point or not to bullet point? I think it depends what part of the form it is. So there are some parts of the form where it's sort of asking why do you want to be a barrister or what will make you think you'll be a good commercial barrister or a good advocate. And there we want to see that you're able to write prose, that you can construct sentences, be persuasive in writing. There are other bits of the form, like you know, what are your recreational interests, where bullet points makes a lot more sense. You just get down what are the things that you think we'll find interesting about you. Um, so, yeah, sort of a bit of a mix, but don't do the whole form in bullet points. Um, and that includes when explaining your mini pupillage experience on the sort of legal work experience part of the form. We want to have a description of what you found interesting or particularly compelling about a given mini pupillage. Don't just put bullet points, attended court, read some papers. That's not going to be very helpful for your application form. What is it that you are hoping to learn about a candidate from the mini pupillages section then? A couple of things. First of all, to show that you have some idea of the sort of set you're applying to. So if you're applying to chambers like mine, which is one of the commercial sets, that you've got relevant work experience within the commercial sphere so that we know that you're committed to that area of the bar. Likewise, if you're going to a family set, to make sure you have relevant mini pupillage experience of family law. Um, so that's the, the first. And the second is to see if you've gained any particular experience or useful learning points from your mini pupillages. So um, whether you've done a particular case that you found really interesting, um, that it shows a sort of understanding of the sort of work within that particular sphere. So for commercial law, there's lots of paperwork. And so have you found that experience useful and you know, to, to show that you're well cut out for life at the commercial bar? One of the most common questions I'm asked by pupillage applicants is how many minis should they put on an application form? Supposing they've done seven or eight minis, do you think that all of those need to go on the form? I think there's a, exactly, there's a difference between how many minis should you do and how many you should put on the form. So some of it depends on how quickly you work out what area you want to practice in. So if you know from the outset you want to go to commercial bar and you do, say, seven commercial mini pupillages, then I'd probably put down all seven. I think that's fine. I think when it gets beyond seven, it starts to look a bit strange. But then if you're applying to all of the sets you've done mini pupillages at, then that, I think you probably should put them all down. In contrast, if you've done a few commercial mini pupillages, a few family ones, a few criminal ones... Um, it's not going to help your application by putting all of those down because by the time you do your application, you need to be more focused on what set you want to go to. So uh, it, uh, you know, looking at Fountain Court, we're not going to be that interested by the fact that you've done four criminal mini-pupillages, perhaps just limit it to one. So the interview, you can convincingly explain, well, I don't want to be a criminal barrister because I, I spent one week on a mini-pupillage there and that showed me that actually I was more cut out for the commercial bar instead. And is there a number of minis that is too many minis? Do you ever look at a form and think this person really needs to get out more? I think we regularly look at forms and think candidates <laughs> need to get out more. And we'll probably come on to that when talking about what you should put down on your 
interests outside of the law. I think probably when it gets beyond 10 mini pupilages, we start to seriously consider what these people are doing in their summer holidays. Um, but it's not a sort of death knell to any pupilage application to have too many. Certainly, too, it's much worse to have too few. The part of the form that requires applicants to put down why they want to be a barrister, it's quite difficult, I think, for people when they're when they're completing this part of the form because they know that things like, oh, because it's intellectually challenging and or because um, I, I would like to uh, be responsible for my own practice. They're things that everyone is going to find attractive about life at the bar. Have you got any tips for people to help them stand out a bit or what do you find persuasive? Sure, well, I think actually it's very, as you say, it's very difficult to stand out on that part of the form. And actually we're not looking for people to suddenly come up with something new. I'll say I've probably yes. been on the Publish Committee for 10 years um, and I'm not sure whether I've seen any answers to that question that are sort of so compelling that it raises that application uh, above the norm. Whereas the bizarre answers, the sort of trying to be funny answers are ones that normally go straight into the bin. So really it's about can you construct a paragraph explaining why you want to be a barrister that shows that you can write, shows that you can try and be persuasive and that actually you don't make mistakes, that you understand what the job is about. So things like interest in advocacy, the intellectual sort of rigour of being a barrister, they're points that all the good candidates will make, but just make sure you make them too. We're not looking for you to necessarily stand out, it's more making sure you don't make a mistake. Which parts of the form then do you find are useful to you when you're sitting on the on the pupilage committee in, in helping you understand... Um, okay, this is an exceptional candidate, or this is someone who, yeah, would probably give them an interview. Are, are there parts of the form that are more revealing than others, do you find? There are. So, first of all, it's the more objective parts of the form. So, the grades from university and give as much information about that as possible. Likewise, any prizes you've got at university. And then your sort of mooting or advocacy experience. So, again, any objective evidence of that, including prizes that you've won, we find that very useful. But in terms of the sort of narrative description parts of the form that are helpful, as I said before about um, your experience on mini pupilages, sort of a convincing explanation of which of those experiences you found most um, sort of enlightening and most helpful for wanting to come to the bar. And then also the section on why the particular chambers, so not so much why a barrister, but we, we are very interested in why Fountain Court to sort of see what research you've done about the place and as to whether you've got any real reasons as to why you're applying to our particular chambers as opposed to somewhere else. That can be quite hard, I think, for people um, on the on the outside, so to speak, because they've got a website to go by and hopefully they will have done a mini pupillage. But apart from that, what, what sort of steps can they take to try and find out the answer to that question? Well, I think actually mini pupillages are the, the best one, and so that's why um, even if you don't put them all down on your form, doing a number of mini pupilages does help you understand the differences between chambers and actually most of the websites are now really helpful the chambers websites that although that we may all seem the same different chambers structure their pupilage pupilages very differently yeah and it really stands out when an applicant identifies that our pupilage structure is put this way and they they find that particularly um a particularly good structure for this reason um that shows they've actually paid attention to Fountain Court. So actually the, the two most obvious routes, mini pupilages and looking at the website. They are actually sufficient, you think, to be De- able definitely. to enable good candidates to explain properly an answer to that question. I, I definitely agree. And not least because some other routes that people take 
like talking to a, a friend at the bar or something actually tends to look a lot less persuasive and tends to ring of nepotism um, <laughs> rather than actually sort of well-informed research. This year, the pupillage gateway form has changed so that some of the questions have been merged together. Two that have been merged are why this chambers and why these practice areas. So students now have to answer those two questions in one. Do you have any advice for how to do that? I think that's actually going to be really difficult. The best candidates probably will, particularly for the sets they most want to get into, will totally rewrite that section on for each of the sets they want to apply to to make sure that, so say if it was Fountain Court, it would have focus both on why commercial law is attractive, but then also will then segue into, and because I have that interest in commercial law, Fountain Court is one of the top sets in that practice area. And then it give a few sort of thoughtful examples as to why you think Fountain Court is one of the best commercial sets. And so my top tip would be don't just copy and paste your sections into each of the forms and really take care to tailor each of your answers for each of the sets you really want to get into. Which is particularly challenging now. You can apply to 20 different chambers. Exactly. And and from past experience, it's always very obvious when answers are just copy and pasted. And that's why I said before that one of the bits of the form we look for most are have you taken the effort to tailor your application to our particular chambers? Have you really spent time researching us, looking on the website um, and really addressed your mind as to why you want to come to this particular set? Yes, every year we at Five Essex Court get answers that say we're applying to one crown office row because and similar which um, unless they're really outstanding can often be a a bad sign yes can you tell us james what are some absolute no-nos on an application form we have so many applications that some of the silly errors are a very easy way to get put down to the bottom of the pile so it sounds obvious but typos um, and checking for simple errors. Practice, so, practice, for example. <laughs> exactly. Practice, practice is one. Um, lots of people sort of not changing their form, so saying how they're, they're really interested in criminal law when they're applying to a commercial set. And I had um, a form a few years ago where they were describing their experience of having worked at the what they wanted to say was the Crown Prosecution Service, and you know, that would be relevant legal experience. But every time the word prosecution was meant to appear, it was prostitution. So they talked about how their great work experience at the Crown Prostitution Service um, (laughs) and how that told them a great deal about prostitution. Oh, no. um, Which just shows an immediate lack of care and attention. And given that being a barrister, you do have to be very precise, that is a real no-no on an application form. James, can you tell us the the section on the form about hobbies and interests is one of the very few places that an applicant can make themselves stand out and reveal a bit of their true character. What do you look for in that section? Not being robotic. I think that's a real area where (laughs) candidates have become much more professional or think that we in chambers only want to see interests in, in law or in mooting or in debating. We are actually interested to see whether you're a rounded human being. Ultimately, you're not going to get any work as a barrister if you're a total robot and show no personality. So we are interested in, do you play for a sports team or do you knit or sew or are you a jigsaw compulsive addict or something? I mean, do put down what you think we'll find interesting, not just what you think we're looking for. And in particular, that you think we're looking for signs of your great virtue or your diligence in basically doing law (laughs) 24-7. Oh, well, that's comforting. <laughs> Do you think that there, there is ever a place on the form to be funny? 
I think in the the bit about your interests, that can, you can have a humorous description of your own interests and be sort of self slightly self deprecating about some of the bizarre things you might be interested in, and at least recognizing that we might think they're a bit quirky. Like um, we had a guy who applied who's very interested in um, dramatic sort of swordsmanship, so not doing fencing as such, but doing. Um, sword fights for theatre productions. Wow. Um, and his description of that was quite amusing. Um, in a way, I think he probably has to be for something describing something that, that's that obscure. So that's fine. But try not to be humorous on the sort of why you want to be a barrister section. Very wise. Fantastic. Well, James, thank you very much indeed for coming on the Pupilage podcast. Pleasure. This is for the rest of your life. If you can't spend the time to reread and reread again your application form, then it doesn't give us much confidence about how you might treat your advices when you're a real practicing barrister. Our next guest, Paul Greatorex, is a barrister at 11KBW. Paul shared some advice that he had learnt during his time on a pupillage committee and offered us some particular words of wisdom for mature students writing about their former careers on an application form. The principal way that we recruit our pupils is through the mini-pupillage system, um, which I know not all sets do, um, but that is um, compulsory, effectively. I think we are prepared to consider exceptional applications if there are exceptional reasons why you can't do a mini-pupillage, but the usual route in uh, is through an assessed mini-pupillage, um, and what that means is, is that you, come, you apply for a mini-pupillage, which is in itself not an easy process to get through, uh, and if you're successful, you will spend uh, roughly three or four days, sometimes five days in chambers, um, but the key part of it is that you'll do an assessed piece of work whilst you're there, um, which uh, is uh, marked by members of chambers, and you have a, a, a there's an oral advocacy uh, exercise where you present your answer and <clears throat> that uh, how you perform in that uh, largely but not entirely determines um, whether or not you'll be invited for an interview for pupillage. So a good piece of advice for people who are starting to prepare their applications is to check with each chambers on their website whether they offer assess mini pupillages and to make sure that they've applied for one of those if that is part of the application process. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think the most, one of the most important general points I'd make uh, relating to that is that, and this applies to almost every stage of the application process, is, is that you've got to look at each chambers individually. Um, because although there's the common pupillage gateway process, that is really just sort of a, a clearinghouse type system. Um, and within that, um, every set of chambers has its own unique applications process um, and so that is probably I would say the single most important bit of advice I'd give anyone is to look at each set of chambers that you are thinking of applying to and make sure that you understand everything about them and their process because uh, uh, just because one set does it one way another set might do it a completely different way so it's obviously very important to understand that about your set um, it's very important that you sort of read up completely on, on the set that you're interested in uh, the sort of work they do and, and you it's one of the challenges of the process is although you're allowed to put down 20 sets of chambers is making sure that your application and your interview if you get to that stage appears 
individual and fresh to that particular of chambers and is also directly related to that, that set of chambers. I know we've touched on a, a lot of different things there, but it seems to me that's a, that's a very important point. Applicants come from all, all walks of life and all, all sort of backgrounds. What I would call the sort of the traditional route is the person who's been through university. They've either, they're about to do bar school or they're doing the law conversion course and then they want to become you know, a barrister. They might have taken a year or two extra along the way doing some sort of postgraduate qualification, but essentially um, you have that type of candidate and they probably, they, they form the bulk of applicants that, that we saw. But you also get a very significant minority of applicants who are, aren't coming through that particular route. Um, and the particular category that I have in mind, we saw a, a reasonable number of, were what I call the mature applicants, so people who had had some sort of career um, doing something else before deciding that they wanted to become a barrister. Um, and within that, probably the most, most common uh, type of background was someone who'd been a solicitor and was converting. But we had applicants from, from as I say, been working in banking. Um, I remember we got applicants from the armed forces, yes. um, teachers, you know, whatever it might be. And I think that the advice I give to, to people like that is, is that, um, yes, we want to know that you were very good at the job that you did, that's fine. But the most important thing, I think, is is to uh, explain why what you've learned in the career that you've had to date is going to, you think, means that you're going to be a good barrister. And what I found very frustrating is I'd see applicants who would sort of go about how great they were in banking or in the armed forces or a teacher or whatever, but they were missing the final stage of explaining you know, why that meant they would become a good barrister. All that tells me is, is that you're a good banker or a good teacher or whatever it might be so I think that if you are in that sort of situation you've really got to focus on the skills that you've got and the things that you've learned that you think are going to make you a good barrister and part of that is understanding what 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 you do need to be a good barrister which is probably covered in a different bit of this podcast but I think it's a question of understanding that and bringing it out in your application form. You've touched on something really interesting there about mature students Mm. and one thing mature students often worry about is whether the fact that they're coming to the bar slightly later in life is going to count against them. My own experience is that it's a very valuable thing to be a mature student because you bring a whole raft of life experience which will really help you in pupillage and beyond. What's your view of mature students? Well, as I was saying, I mean, I, 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 I agree with you, um, providing that the skills that they've got and the experience that they've got is going to make them a good barrister. You know, just because you are a good whatever you've been in your existing career doesn't mean that you will necessarily be, be a good barrister. So it's a question of, um, you know, for example, give examples of you know, the advocacy skills that you've developed if you're a teacher and you're standing up in front of a class every day. Um, I mean, that might be a little bit obvious. You might want to sort of think about sort of examples that might not be so obvious to your, the, the, the people who are reading your form. Um, you know, your analytical skills, um, your ability to um, uh, take a, a huge amount of information and distill distill the essence of it and get to grips with the with the essence of it and then present it and to present an argument so um i think that uh, yes the, there is absolutely no reason at all why um uh, you should feel um disadvantaged um if you are in that position but it is important as i say to convince the person reading your application form uh, that you you know that, that that time has been spent developing skills that are going to be transferable i think that i think that you make an important point that could be applicable more generally to work experience uh, that that candidates put on their forms because um, it seems to me that what a candidate what might help a candidate is to extract from whatever work experience they have it may not be a former career but it may just be a job in sales or it yes. may be 
I don't know, working as a lifeguard or working with children, whatever it might be, they need to identify in that work experience the skills that they can then use as a barrister. And would, would you agree that, that that's probably a, a good strategy for presenting your legal and non-legal work experience? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think a couple of points about that. I think that where it's something sort of fairly obvious, like if you've been involved in mooting or whatever, there's a tendency to sort of get a bit lazy about that and just say, well, I'm, you know, I was moot champion or I did all of this mooting and you just, you know, everyone will understand, you know, that that means that you've got good oral advocacy skills. Um, as I say, it tends to be a bit lazy and, you know, rather than just putting it down, it's sort of say what you learned from it, exactly what you did. Um, but you've got that sort of category of, of experience which is sort of obviously most obviously directly related and then you've got the other types that you were talking about um, which aren't quite so obvious um, the one note of caution I would sound about that is is don't go over the top and try and pretend that everything you've ever done in your life has been preparing you for this moment of being a barrister. If the reality is, is that whilst you're in the sixth form, you worked in a shop, you know, to earn a bit of money, um, you might say, I learned how to deal with people. I mean, that's an important part of being a barrister. You know, yes. I learned how to deal with difficult customers. But I mean, I think trying to sort of pretend that that sort of gave you great advocacy skills or something like that is not going to be convincing. Um, so don't try and turn everything you ever did into, you know, uh, uh, this is why I'm going to be a great barrister. Some things you can just do for other reasons uh, uh, you know like for fun or um, you know, for your own personal development but if there is an angle that's that's relevant such as as I say you know a, a, a large part of being a barrister is just being able to get on with people and so if you've if you've had a job where you're you know you're interacting with people and particularly with difficult people because you come across difficult people quite a lot um, you know at the bar then that that's something worth worth mentioning but as I say don't don't take it too far and be realistic you know, I think most people in chambers who are reading these applications you know they want to see a human being there as well as as well as a sort of potential barrister. It can be tempting just to apply to your first choice of chambers, but Alina Misra from Old Square Chambers told us about the value of applying to a spectrum and how to work out where to pitch yourself. Well, Alina Misra, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Let's imagine you're a student, you have identified the areas of law that you want to practice, you've identified those chambers that practice those areas, you've identified the location that you're looking at, and you've created a, a long list of your dream chambers. How do you know which of those chambers is the place for you? So you might have identified the top, let's say, the top three chambers in the area of law that you're passionate about. But I think you've got to then look at your own application and have a think about... Where do you realistically fit in and what is the likely competition going to be so that you can have um, expectations that are realistic and an application strategy that is also realistic? You certainly want to have some aspirational applications in there. Um, you've got to back yourself. If you're going to do this job, you've got to back yourself to some extent. Um, somewhere you think, OK, this is probably where I fit in and a few what I'd call backup options as well. So you want to make sure you've got at least, say, a minimum of maybe 12. I think you've got a maximum of 20. So don't, um, don't undersell yourself. I think that's really good advice to apply to a spectrum of chambers. I know at least one person who applied to the very creme de la creme and he got onto the reserve lists of all of those places and he didn't quite get the pupillage. And if he had applied to a, a wider spectrum, he would probably have had multiple pupillages. Um, I was probably quite fortunate. I made a, a spectrum of applications way back when. I won't identify exactly when, when that was. It feels a long time ago now. But um, uh, So I did apply to sets and I thought, well, that's a bit aspirational. Here's where I think I am and here are my backup ones. I, and I was lucky enough to get um, interviews at um, my top three sets. Um, 
And there was one set that I thought was, well, probably two sets I thought, these are the two I'm most interested in. And uh, for one of them, they wanted me to do an additional, additional mini pupillage along with a few other people. And to this day, I remember this, this leading set had about four of us show up and I, I lived, um, I grew up in North Yorkshire, so I'd come down to London to do this uh, mini pupillage. And we all arrived, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, suited and booted, and we'd all made arrangements to stay in London, come down on the train. And we were told there'd been a, an error. And this set um, had just got the dates wrong. No. And they were really sorry. They hadn't told any of us they couldn't do the uh, mini pupillage. Now, this is a set that has, and it will remain nameless, but it has, um, it's very well known. It has a lot of leading silks, a lot of juniors. It's a big set. And they could easily have said, this has been a bit of a, a mix up, but do you know what? We're just going to get a few barristers. You can shadow them. You can do something. We'll make use of this time. But instead, they sent us all off packing and said, well, we'll try and reorganise something for a date that's convenient to us as a chambers. And again, without naming the names of the other people who were there on that uh, to do that assess mini pupillage, not a single one of us um, was interested in that set after that. It was really the approach that was taken. So sometimes even the ones that you think this is my dream ticket will do something that reveal a bit more of their true colours or the atmosphere of doesn't, doesn't quite work for you. Yeah, and it tells so, you about how you are going to be treated as a pupil, if that's how they're going to treat you as a mini pupil. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. a warning sign. It is. And so, uh, of, luckily, of the two sets, I thought, you know, they, these were equally my dream ticket. That then made my decision quite early. When I say my decision, it was very fortunate that I managed to get a pupillage at the, at the other set. Um, but it sort of, I didn't have any regrets about the, the one that I, I didn't pursue, as it were. <laughs> so you never know how things will turn out. Is there anything we haven't asked you that you were keen to cover? Sometimes life at the bar will take you in a particular direction. So to anyone who's starting out in pupillage, the main thing I would say is back yourself and just keep a bit of an open mind. Thank you very much, Alina. It's been my pleasure. You may think that the section that appears on many application forms asking about your hobbies and interests is just the icing on the cake, something that you can dash off at the end having carefully crafted your other weightier answers. But in fact, this question is singularly important. Here we talked to Kate Grange QC, a member of the pupillage committee at Gateway Set 39 Essex, and she explained why this answer can make all the difference when chambers receive hundreds of applications. The form is often the first example of written advocacy that a chambers will see from you. Do you have any advice as to how, um, how to stand out from the crowd? Absolutely. I mean, you've got to think through, it's a bit like exam scripts, thinking through that your tutors are going to read many, many, many exam scripts in a very short period of time. It's exactly the same principle. So we get over well over 300 applications to chambers. And although we then divide up the paper sift process, each uh, paper sifter will will sift um, many, many applications. It could be, you know, up to 100 applications. Um, and we we, du- we double mark, so or even triple mark each form. So it's not just one person seeing it, maybe several people seeing it. You've got to bear in mind that many applications could be being considered over a few hours by that same person. So it's about standing out. It's about really crisp, tight presentation, really focused presentation. You need to just see that some care has been taken in terms of the way it's been set out. Um, that's really important. Another part of the form that is susceptible to the individual is the part of the form that asks about hobbies and interests. Should our listeners be putting down, I love mooting in this section of the form, or, or should, do you think they should be trying to no. show a life outside the law? 
when I look at that section, and it is again for us and our set, and in my experience, a very critical section of the form that we look at, because you have to understand many, many applicants have stellar academic qualifications, experience. They've all done mini pupillages. A lot of them will have done meeting. So what often stands people out is just to learn something about their personality, their other interests. Now we, as a set, and I know many other sets, are really excited by people who have passions outside of the law, outside of the bar. We want rounded, well-rounded human beings who have experience in life, who bring um, imagination and you know and passion to their job. So it really could be anything in that form. It could be a passion for cookery or reading. It could be you know mountaineering or you know amazing achievements that you you've had it, it could be quite mundane but if it's important to you you can make it sound exciting you can make yourself stand out and that will often be a springboard that they will use in the interviewing process so whatever you put down there you need to expect that you'll probably be asked about it um so again it's got to be genuine and sincere if you put down a hobby and then you fall flat on your face describing it at interview that's not ideal I think something that that I take from that part of the form when I'm reading application forms is that I'm often incredibly impressed by the amount of things that people have been able to achieve and do whilst still maintaining excellent grades and mooting, etc. So for me, the value of of that part of the form is also because it, it shows me that that person is good at time management, is good at pressure, and, and as you say, is interested in exploring all, all sorts of things that life has to offer. And that's life at the bar. Life at the bar is immensely challenging. You are always juggling, always juggling different cases, different pressures, different clients, different solicitors. So that those skills that you can develop early in your life in terms of juggling different time commitments um, are really important. It's also about people being um, a kind of balanced and healthy human being. I think being at the bar is an immensely stressful profession. And what we're looking for as well is resilience. It's people that work hard and achieve, you know, achieve well but who also have things in their lives which take them away and allow them to relax and allow them to switch off and allow them to, you know, then be at their best when they come back to work. So for me, it's about looking for a well-rounded, balanced individual who has the ability um, to, you know, absorb an awful lot of interests and activities. Because in some ways, I think um, school and university, bar school, they're quite structured environments. And what people need, one of the qualities that people need to thrive at the bar is the ability to um, manage their own career and yeah. do what they can in in what can be a relatively unstructured environment, an unpredictable environment. Absolutely. And I think you often make a better barrister if you give yourself thinking time and time away and time to go and exercise or time to go and fulfill a passion and then come back and sometimes there's more time for that than at other times but if you haven't got that going on in your life then it can be incredibly grueling and not necessarily a healthy thing in terms of your longevity at the bar. Are there any common mistakes that you see time and again on application forms? Simply getting it wrong what kind of work the set does. We've had people describe our set as a chancery set or a family set, and we're not. 
And again, that's not good. It's a very basic error. Yeah, we had a we had shipping, up, didn't we? We had shipping. Yeah. We had we had pharma, pharmaceutical law. <laughs> yes, there is a pharmaceutical law chamber. We said in the Mini Pupillages episode that different barristers will have different opinions, but there are a few things that everyone seems to agree on, and one of them is a shared bugbear when it came to applications, typos. What are some absolute no-nos on an application form? Typos? Yes. Got to really proofread. It sounds obvious, but typos. Spelling mistakes? It's amazing how frequently you see spelling mistakes or grammatical errors, which could easily have been picked out. And obviously some typos are worse than others. Um, So an occasional spelling mistake is not the end of the world necessarily. But bad grammar, bad punctuation, um, they are things that you're going to have to use all day. And the problem there is if you spot one of those, it instantly leads the reader to think this person doesn't really care enough. Alison Pickup, when you were at Doughty Street, you were involved in sifting application forms and interviewing candidates, and we wondered if you could talk to us today about application forms. Um, Have you got any tips for how to stand out from the crowd? So I think being concise is a really big thing because you have to remember that a lot of chambers will be reading a lot of applications and they're not going to read through pages and pages no matter how good and persuasive it is so being concise focusing on really answering the question and thinking about what it is about you that fits really well with this chambers and sort of really trying to identify something that makes you different yes so you need to really have done quite a lot of work before it comes to actually writing the form because you need to have assembled the material that you're going to hopefully craft into a concise and persuasive piece of work. Yes, it's definitely worth starting as soon as possible. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously the form has got quite a lot of different sections to it. I wonder if you could say which part of the form you think is most valuable for you when you're when you're undertaking a sift for example depends on the stage of the sift and how many applications you're sifting there's a there's you know brutally there's an initial stage of sift where you're looking at degree class work experience kind of commitment like the things that you can use to 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 really cut that number of applications down but then for the for the real selection, it's the bespoke questions. It's the it's the questions at the end, which the chambers have selected, which questions they want to ask, and it's the answers that you put um, in your responses to those questions that ha- say the most about you and about why you've applied to that those chambers. I think. And what sort of things would you be looking for in in those answers? So I think. Um, people who are able to show that they understand what a career at the bar is about, yes. and why they want to do it and why and why what's inspired them to become a barrister that they've understood what that means that it's not all you know silk style grammar uh, glamour sorry silk style glamour (laughs) um and that they are prepared for both the hard work side of it um and also uh the rewarding side of kind of being able to make a difference to individuals and uh, and and to organisations and to and to uh, in affecting and implementing the law. So I, I think it's, it's it's about it's about um, giving evidence to support what you're saying as well. So giving examples yes. of, that support what you're saying and not just asserting oh I'm I've got great advocacy skills, but but giving an example that shows that you do have great advocacy skills is much more persuasive and in itself will demonstrate that you have good advocacy skills. Yes. So you've put in your application form. 
and you don't hear anything back for a month or two should you chase chambers or should you just wait and see? Uh, you should wait because you have to remember that many chambers will have hundreds of applications. Um, certainly remember at Doughty Street, we used to have literally hundreds of applications and we went through a two-stage written SIF process before we even got to the first interview. Um, so you would... It, there's just a long time and you've got barristers who've got busy practices doing that sifting as well. Um, but I think there may come a point where it's appropriate to sort of send an email and say, I haven't heard anything from you. Um, what stage have you reached or when am I likely to hear? I know when I was applying, it was rejection by silence was quite common. I think I've still got a number of outstanding pupilish applications. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I had one chambers that I didn't hear from until after everybody else. I'd been through two stages of interviews everywhere else. Um, and in fact, I think we'd got past the offer date as well. And then I heard from the final chambers and I was kind of like, well, it's a bit late now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Actually, the studentroom.com has a rather good, um, the, it's called the pupillage thread. And every year somebody starts it up and people say, oh, interviews are out for this place or we've had rejections of this place and that's quite a good if you are sitting there waiting in limbo it might be a good idea to check that see if you can see yeah on the grapevine (laughs) thank you ever so much Alison for coming to talk to us it's been really valuable you're welcome we heard some more on this subject from Michael Harwood something that I wanted to ask Michael you mentioned that part of the Middle Temple Young Barristers Association part of what they do is hold um, application surgeries, if I can mm-hmm. put it like that. Are you able to give us an example of a application cardinal sin? Um, I could probably give you a few, but if there's a top one, often they are far, far too long. And I think, and this applies to both CVs and pupillage applications, it's so, so important to be selective. Now, it, it may be that the way that the pupillage gateway thing has changed a little since I did it but although I know that some of the questions do have discrete word limits I think there is you can almost in terms of adding your experience you can just keep putting bits on and on and on and on and on and and so I suppose the biggest advice I give to someone is to actually when they've finished drafting what they think is their completed form print it off because obviously you're drafting this whole thing on a computer and the people who are looking through it are going to be looking at hard copies. That's such um, a good idea. Yeah, and more yeah. often than not, you don't realise by the time you've put all these things on how huge this document is. And it can be a lot to draw through and some of it can be very repetitive. So really be selective. Think about actually what what experiences are the most relevant and what, what ones are showcasing the sorts of skills that I want these people to see. Um, but also, am I when I'm talking about these experiences am I doing it in a concise and persuasive way because the thing about these applications and it's the same with CVs it is a piece of written advocacy it's you persuading the person reading it that you are the best candidate for this thing so you should treat it in that way it's your first opportunity to show someone that you can be persuasive so being concise making points in a structured and logical way that ultimately answers the question that you've been set really really important and you do Unfortunately, I've seen a lot that are just, you know, they've started out life as a structured answer and then you can see that they've gone, oh, I've got 100 words left and then they've typed a couple of extra sentences and it completely spoils what would otherwise be a really nicely crafted answer. That is really good advice. You um, 
bring to mind when we get our pupillage applications we print them off as you describe and the very first impression you get is in fact the weight of an individual's application so I might get some that are so thin that I know straight away this is probably not going to be someone who's going to impress me and equally I get some that are a tome. Yeah no it's true certainly when you sometimes you have the experience of reading an application and you come to the end of it and you realise that it is it's not a tome it's not all that long but somehow there's so much in it and then mm. you know that you've really really got a good application form so might 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 the answer be that you should or might one strategy be for our listeners to print off as you say and then give it to someone else so that poor other person <laughs> has to wade through it and then and then you can have a discussion perhaps and 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 find out from them which bits are the bits that they think are the most effective and mm. the most powerful absolutely Earlier in the series, we spoke to Justice First Fellow, Matt Alualia, and he had this golden tip for how to write an effective application. I think the best advice I was given for writing a pupillage application was to try and think of it as a skeleton argument. And it took me a little bit of time to work out what that actually meant, but when I, when it clicked, it made it so much easier for me to structure it and, and think about what needs to go where and where you can afford to cut out bits because being concise and succinct is really is, is going to be to your advantage um so normally as goes an argument you set out the facts of your case at the beginning and then your sort of legal framework and then your submissions will come after and if you try and think of your education and employment history as the sort of facts of your case and then when it comes to answering questions about why you think you're going to be a good barrister that's when you're effectively making your submissions on the the question which is which is what you're trying to persuade them of. Um, and so having that framework in mind makes it a bit easier to make sure that when you're answering the questions, you're focusing on the persuasive bit rather than the the facts and the history of your of yourself, because that should have already come in early in the form. Um, and so once once I sort of... Once, once that had clicked for me, um, I did find that I was getting more interviews and it was it made it a lot easier to sort of tailor the form to particular sets of chambers as well which is also really important but yeah that was that was the best advice i got was to treat it like a skeleton oh that's brilliant thank you for sharing it with with us and our listeners elizabeth duomo from lamb chambers talked to us about why her chambers chose not to use the pupillage gateway and told us how to impress in a covering letter welcome liz duomo to the pupillage podcast Thank you. (laughs) Would you like to tell our listeners who you are and what you do? My name is Liz Duomo. I am a barrister at Lamb Chambers. I specialise in property and commercial and employment law. And Lamb Chambers is, I think, a a set of chambers that doesn't use the gateway. That's correct. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the application process in your set. For Lamb, we've chosen not to be part of the gateway. I think just to give us a bit more flexibility in kind of questions that we can ask um, applicants. Also to give us time, more flexibility, I think, in in snapping up the best talent. I think that's fair to say. We usually just ask for straightforward CV, covering letter, um, a list of referees. We have a two-stage process. We usually ask um, or pose a problem question and... Uh, we require you to attend on any given day, usually panels, to begin with usually a panel of three, then followed by a final panel of four or five members of chambers. So you said that the 
initial application is by way of a CV and covering letter. Yes. So it sounds to me like that covering letter is an extremely important document. It's key. I can imagine the temptation might be for some people who have or who are also applying to gateway sets to sort of do a bit of a cut and paste job. Yeah. Is that something that am I right? Do you can you spot that from time to time, or do you do you do you feel that, that actually candidates do a bit better than that? Um, I'll be kind. Candidates generally do do better than that, <laughs> but you definitely can spot the cut and paste jobs. So you always look to see well why. Are they applying to LAM? Usually that's set out somewhere in the in the opening of the CV, um, CV covering letter. And if it's not, then you wonder what's going on. Um, you get an indication that perhaps this hasn't been really thought through in terms of the covering letter. Then you get the usual, um, I want to be a barrister because... And it doesn't quite marry up to the areas that Chambers does. And you just think, mm, why are you applying to us? And then you've just got the basics also punctuation grammar all wrong oh dear Errors. so the, those those are reasons those are reasons to put the letter into that applicant into a no pile on a more sort of positive and cheery front what are the what, what things do you look out for that make you think oh okay this one is this this person someone that we'd like to look at a little bit further i think you always have to think well um we're getting reams of applications coming through so something that makes you stand out from the outset so if you've had a gap year and you've done something interesting during that gap year putting it in your um, covering letter is really interesting if you've done some kind of voluntary work that sets you apart legal or non-legally related that's worth putting in from the outset Um, also if you know that somebody in chambers has done an interesting case and you've written about it I think, and you've put that in, that's also something that stands you out from the rest of the crowd. In terms of the, the, you you spoke about um, work experience that that is interesting and that that makes the reader think, oh, okay, I'd like to find out a little bit more. Do you think it's important for that work experience to be relatable to a career at the bar? I appreciate that you said it doesn't need to be necessarily sort of legal work experience, so to speak, but would you be looking for experience that demonstrates perhaps some of the skills and attributes that you're looking for in your future barristers? Definitely. So if we can demonstrate something that definitely relates to the skill set of barristers, something that shows integrity, something that shows that you're actually wanting to help people. I mean, for me, that's the reason why I got into the law. So if I see some kind of work experience identified in that respect, um, I find that interesting. How do people demonstrate to you in their CV and covering letter that they have the aptitude to be a good advocate? Well, that's a very good question. Just because you, you probably appreciate on, on gateway forms, there is a sort of specific section where you can, where you can put that in. What, do, you, do, you, do you just leave it up to candidates to work out that that's probably a sensible thing to include in their covering letter? Or how, how do you... Definitely. I mean, most of them will usually refer to mooting that they've done. Um, if they've worked through, for example, that comes through, and I think that's really useful. Um, most of them realise that, well... 
a desire to be a good advocate is, is key and they work through it that way. One person I remember um, used to do just voluntary work for I think it was age concern and it was just demonstrating the ability to relate to a wide range of people um, perhaps out of the, her comfort zone. I thought that was pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah. So is it right to say for students that non-gateway sets have the advantage that you can put in as many applications as you like and that those applications can be spread over the course of the year because they're not limited to the gateway window but the the perhaps unexpected disadvantage is that they have to be even more careful in tailoring their applications because it's not a question of cutting and pasting the same answers they've actually got to draft an entire covering letter that's got to be specifically tailored to that chambers absolutely you've got to take the time um, and it and it and it does take time. I think usually when people think, oh, I'm not faced with a seven-page application, it's going to be easier. But actually, no, you've got to distill usually just on one side of A4 all your achievements, all your skill sets. And, yeah, it has to be very reasoned, very rational. And is that right? Your, your covering letter really should be one side of A4. It couldn't be three or four pages of detailed discussion. The volume that most um, sets would receive, it, it should be just one side of A4. When you have individuals who are able to distill their thoughts so concisely and clearly on one side of A4, you think to yourself, well, actually, this is also part of the skill set of a lawyer. You've got to be able to convey and persuade succinctly. Another thing that we heard unanimous views on was the answer to this question. So you finished your huge application effort and you've got your application there ready to go to 20 different sets of chambers should you press send no definitely not (laughs) so you've finished your careful drafting of your application form should you hit send straight away no as i said starting early is helpful but um having time to reflect on what you say maybe ask trusted friends or family members to have a look at it for you um print it off read it out in a hard copy and again it's easy to tell when candidates have just bashed it off right before the deadline. So you have at least a month um, in order to actually draft the form and you can practice on um, an application beforehand too. So make sure you finish it about a, a week before the deadline and then at the very least sleep on it and read it through in the morning before you click send. And I think there's, some, there's something about coming back to it as well. So you're not just spending a whole week working on it, but you're doing other things as well and you come back to it, spend a couple of hours on it, then go and do something else and then you'll, you'll come back to it fresher and with a, with a better perspective. A very good idea to sort of sense check and particularly for those bits of the form where you might have tried to be a bit funny. I think they're the ones that's best to ask someone else's opinion about and then invariably cut. Thank you for listening to the Pupillage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Dopirala. Huge thanks to the wonderful team here at Middle Temple. James Rogerson for helping us with the logistics, Darren Latty for coffees and pastries, and Colin Davidson for his enthusiasm, encouragement and awe-inspiring little black book. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode. If you have questions you would like answered in future episodes or want to give us some feedback, please email us at pupillagepodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast. So you hit send on your application. What happens at the chamber's end? Different chambers will probably have different systems, um, but invariably it will involve being reviewed sort of a first sift 
by a, the pupillage committee to work out of those who have applied who gets interviews either first round or final round depending on how people do things and the reality is um, certainly a set like mine we get nearly 200 applications um, and that's for ultimately for about four places so the, the first sift in order to work out who to invite for interview is often the, the hardest. So you shouldn't do what I did when I hit send which is hit refresh repeatedly for long periods of time expecting imminent responses. Absolutely. So the gateway window, for instance, closes on the 7th of February, but the offers don't come out until I think it's the 7th of May. And most chambers will use most of that window in order to finalise their pupillage process. So particularly that first shift is likely to take at least a month before the wheels start turning for being invited to interview and so on. So a brief moment of reprieve for students out there. Exactly. You get to click send and then forget about it for about six weeks. Before it's time to prepare for interview, hopefully. (laughs)